Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 will be the back, the back end of Romans chapter 8 in a second. We can have the slide up when you're able to, please Paul as well. Just got the one slide this morning. We should never be surprised, no matter how many times it happens, that what occurs during our music time, our worship time, feeds into what we're about to hear from God's word. But a lot of what we heard just now, about how we can find utter confidence in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in who we are as God's people, find utter confidence for whatever we may face in life. That's what I want to be talking about today. And we should never be surprised when that happens, should we? He's a God who speaks to us. He's a God who's involved. But today, I want to speak about Trinity. I want to speak about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God as Trinity, the three-part Godhead. One God, three persons. I want to talk about that this morning because... It's something we need to keep reminding ourselves, we need to keep repeating, because it's essential to the gospel. Trinity is a word that you may hear sometimes, Trinity is not in the Bible, particularly by certain people who may come knocking on our doors. Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, neither is the word atheist, but I'm pretty sure people who don't believe in God exist. I'm pretty sure that's real. Just because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible doesn't mean it's not an essential truth, but it is also more than an abstract notion. Sometimes Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, sometimes that gets treated as a bit of a curiosity, something that makes our brains melt, and rightly it should, this is God we're talking about. But sometimes it just gets left there. But actually, understanding a three-part Godhead, one God, three persons, understanding that a bit more, we should see how actually explicitly it changes how we can approach our Christian life. It's not just a curious thing to think about or something just for the intellect. Understanding God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, in turn it builds confidence into our everyday walk and into our hope for the future. God as three persons is something we've talked about before and I'm unashamedly not going to shut up about it. But it's vital not only to who we are as God's people, as Christians, but also to how we function as God's children as well. That's what I want to talk about today. I want us to focus on what it means to be truly swept up into the family of God. And by that, I don't just mean swept up into the church, the family of God. I mean being swept up into the family that is God. Which is something we forget sometimes. Because God is family. God is family. If there's one thing unique about Christianity amongst many things, in the Christian understanding of God, what is unique is that God is family. Not a bunch of gods, Greek and Roman gods, all infighting and doing all sorts to each other. It's not a bunch of gods. It's not just one god, like Allah and so on. God is family. This is completely unique to the Christian faith. Our true understanding of who God actually is. God is family. And so, as I've heard before, to suggest that God was lonely before we turned up is totally unbiblical. It's completely false. God was not lonely. So, I mean, for example, John chapter 1, the famous passage about Jesus as the Word, says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, John reveals that he's talking about Jesus. He's saying in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was there, right, from before time began. And then later on in Paul's letter to the Colossians, first chapter, we see that all things were made through Jesus. All things. Jesus is uncreated. All things were made through Jesus. And if you do go back to the uh, 
part of the Bible that talks about the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 then says, not only was Jesus around, but so was Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And then a few verses later, this great, amazing declaration from God saying, let us make man in our image. It's plural again, isn't it? And so if creation was shaped and painted into being by Father and by Son and by Holy Spirit, then they are all outside of time and space. They are all equally God. God is three persons. Now I know most of you in this room know this already, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Maybe someone here is thinking I still don't get this. But even if this is familiar to you, the danger is it can become over-familiar. We need to be wowed and awed by this repeatedly. Here's one more thing that might help you. In the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. And that word God, in the original Hebrew, the original text that was written down, that word for God is Elohim. That word, if you're not already aware, is completely unique on this planet itself. Elohim, this word is used for God, is a plural word. It's a plural word meaning more than one, but it's only ever used in a singular context to refer to the God we're speaking of. So straight away in that word, Elohim, God, the name of God, to describe him is many in one. There's a plurality, even in the word, even in the original Hebrew description. One God, but plural in persons. God is family, the supreme, eternal, loving community. And the wonderful mystery that helps make the good news exactly that good is that not only do we get rescued through Jesus' sacrifice to save us from eternal separation from God, through our, our own selfish desires, we turned away from God, we've created this disconnect in this relationship. Jesus stepped in and bridged that gap, but not only to rescue us from eternal separation from God, but to bring us in to this family that is God. That's the good news of Jesus. That's exactly what he's done. And so because of that, we get to call God Father, Abba, Romans chapter 8. We get to call God Father. We get to call Jesus our big brother, Hebrews chapter 2. We get to call Holy Spirit our counsellor, our advocate, our helper, which is the same language that's used the relationship between a husband and wife. We get to call Holy Spirit our supreme helper, John chapter 14. This eternal family doesn't just rescue us. Right, off you go, you're rescued now. Off you go, fend for yourself. Don't just rescue us. Holy Spirit, Father, Son, adopt us in to the family that is God. Is that not awesome? Is that not mind-blowing? Do we think about this enough? Probably not. <laughs> I know. You and I get to reside permanently within the embrace of the Trinity, this eternal family. So when it comes to prayer, for example, which we've been learning about in depth in the, over a few weeks ago, Suddenly we realise even that, that's more than just a dialogue between two parties. It's a slice of an ongoing togetherness amongst relatives. It's what prayer is. You should get excited about prayer. The Christian life and prayer as as an example of that is more than just a transaction. It's an intimate togetherness. Now we don't always experience that. We don't always function like that. But that is the truth of what's available to us right now. And that's what I just want to press into a little bit more just to help that point kind of seep deeper we're going to look at a few verses from the end of Romans chapter 8 which just demonstrate explicitly how the Christian life works with this family perspective in mind turn to verse 26 
Romans 8, verse 26. Roman, um, Paul has written this amazing letter to the church in Rome. He's, he started off with describing just the utter state humanity has ended up in. But this amazing work that Jesus has done in rescuing us from sin, from death, and then adopted into this family is just a few verses prior in Romans 8. And he says, in light of that, and he says also, you know, we're groaning for the full release of what we've been promised and our inheritance. We're waiting for that. And so is the earth. The earth is groaning. And he says, on the back of that, verse 26, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, this is God, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's almost as if our helplessness triggers Holy Spirit to rush to our assistance. I love that. So you're weak, I'm there. I'm here for you. It's yet another reminder that we are wholly dependent on God to even worship and interact with him in the first place. Trying to do it on our own strength. We fail dismally, don't we, quite often. We are weak. We're easily distracted. We run out of words. We don't even know where to start sometimes. We certainly don't fully comprehend the situation in the first place. So I can guarantee that. But God's okay with that. And his immediate instinct is to come alongside us and to help us. He helps us in our weakness. There's that word helper again. And the word help that Paul uses here pops up. Also in Luke chapter 10, in this wonderful story about two sisters who Jesus came to stay with. Jesus came to their house, their name's Mary and Martha, and Jesus was there. And one of them, Mary, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. She is just lapping up, just, Jesus is here. I'm just going to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching and just, just draw and just soak up everything I can from Jesus. It's, it's a good thing she's doing. Like this, oh, Jesus is here. Why would I want to be anywhere else than right here? Meantime, her sister Mary, Martha is in the kitchen, busily trying to make sure the coffee pot's still on and there's enough drinks for everybody and the garlic bread's not burning and getting the pizzas in on the time because you're trying to juggle. If you've got lots of pizzas to do in an oven, it's a bit of a nightmare trying to get them all in one oven, isn't it? And she's struggling. Has everyone got enough olives? And is everybody happy? And then she just says, Jesus, can you just ask my sister to help me? This burden is too much for me. I need some help. I need my sister to come alongside and shoulder the burden with me. And that word, help, there, is exactly the same word that Paul is using in this passage to say that the Holy Spirit comes alongside and shoulders the burden of prayer. It's exactly the same thing. He turns our groans, our prayers, our feeble attempts at prayer, he turns them into something that strikes home. That's what he does. If you think, I don't know if you're into cake making, I don't really know where to start, but Jenny's pretty good at decorating cakes. You know you get that squeegee bag where you pour all the icing in it, and it's just this kind of gelatinous kind of gloop. It tastes nice, but it looks a right old lump. However, when it's squeezed through that special nozzle that's at the end of the bag, something ornate and intricate and beautiful comes out the other end. Now, in a similar way, Holy Spirit's not a thing. Holy Spirit's a person. Don't mishear me. But in the same way, he just he takes our crude attempts at communing with God and he sculpts them immediately into something far deeper, far richer, far more beautiful, far more effective than we can ever imagine. Holy Spirit, as our helper, is more than just mere assistance. And he's not even 
let me have a go. You put your feet up, have a cup of tea, I'll do this for a bit, you can come back later. No, not at all. What he's doing, Holy Spirit as our helper, this helps us recognising these are still our prayers. We are still involved in the relationship and we're still involved in the moment, the whole moment. But Holy Spirit steps in alongside us to shoulder the burden, to enable our weakest efforts. and He enables them to become something concrete and eternal. Holy Spirit, God does that for you and for you and for you. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? This is what we have been swept up into. This is what it means to be swept up into the family that is God. But it doesn't stop there. That's just Holy Spirit's part, what he plays. But then Paul comes on to Jesus in verse 34. There's some amazing truths that Paul continues for a few verses, which uh, Bob introduced us to a few weeks ago. You can go back on the website, the recording's there to listen to that brilliant sermon. But verse 34, Paul then says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. In just that one sentence, Paul he explicitly unwraps the good news. He peels off its layers and he's saying, Jesus, God in the flesh, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this man of history, who came and declared himself to be God and did some amazing things. This very same man proved himself to be the Messiah, Christ Jesus, the anointed one. This very man. God knows we're skin, and so he came in skin so that we can relate to him and know him in a deeper way emotionally, but also, more importantly, so he can truly bridge the gap, the chasm between flesh and spirit, between God and man. God in the flesh. This, this Jesus, this same God who he himself, he created us and he watched us step away. He willingly stepped forward to rescue us. And he died in the most wretched, the most undeserved, the most demeaning way imaginable. That's what this man Jesus, who is God, did for you and me. But Paul says, well he died, but more than that, he was raised. It didn't stop there. And history itself, I'm utterly convinced, history itself attests to this man Jesus who categorically died. He did not stay dead. Did not stay dead. Everybody, every person on this planet has died or will die. Sorry to say, unless Jesus comes again quicker, you're going to die. It's true. It's a reality of life. Including people who have been resuscitated and say they've seen something. You will hear stories about people being raised from the dead in prayer and stuff like that. All those people end up dying for good later on as well. I was a paramedic for 20 years and I resuscitated a lot of people. I jump-started their hearts. I gave them drugs to reverse the effects of, of other drugs in their body that shut everything down. I've resuscitated people, but those people, they'll die again properly if they haven't already. It's a reality of life, isn't it? But this Jesus, the grave couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. He cleared our debt before the living God. In his suffering and in his death, he wrote the check. But when he rose again, that check cleared. We're brought from the red into the black. That's what he's done for us. But Paul says, yeah, he died, 
And more than that, he was raised. But there's more. <laughs> he doesn't stop there. We're only halfway through the sentence. He said he ascended to the Father's right hand. What does he mean by that? Well, God is beyond the physical. Okay, we need to re- recognise that. So God, has no, God the Father has no literal hands or literal side. But this is a symbolic reference. What it means to be at the right hand of God means to be in the place of highest favour with the Father himself. This phrase is used throughout Scripture to indicate Jesus' power and sovereignty. The utmost, utter. John Calvin the church father from, from a few hundred years ago, he says that Christ is invested with lordship over heaven and earth and he solemnly entered into possession of the government committed to him and that he not only entered into possession once and for all but continues in it. We are not waiting for Jesus to enter his reign. He enjoys it now. This same Jesus who died for you, who rose again for you, who is at the Father's right hand, Sovereign over all right now, this, Jesus, Paul says, intercedes for you. He's interceding for us. Now this word, intercede, it's it's appeared in both sets of verses. It appeared earlier that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's about someone stepping in between you and another party to deal with the hard work on your behalf. You think of an agent, an estate agent, think of a lawyer, a broker, it's an advocate, as someone who says, do you know what, I'll deal with this for you. Someone with the expertise who does all the hard work and does what you cannot do, they do it on your behalf. And this is what Jesus does. None of our efforts make a jot of difference to earning favour from the Father. Nothing you've ever done in life has earned your salvation. That is only available through Jesus. But since then, nothing you do will change how much God loves you. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with a friend, my friend Andy Kite. He was interviewing Mike Betts, who kind of looks after our father's our family of churches. And Mike was saying, if I never pray again and never read my Bible again, I know that God will love me no less. That's the reality of what we get swept up into. It's so true. None of our efforts make a jot of difference to earning favour from the Father, but Jesus' efforts have and do, and that's where our trust always lies. If you have trusted him as your saviour, then no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what you will do, Jesus, every time, will go, it's okay, I've got this. I'll represent you. I'll stand in your place. I've got this. And so Paul is reminding us of that very work that Jesus has done. Saying he died for us, he rose for us, he ascended for us, he is interceding for us on the back of all that. So not only does Holy Spirit come alongside us and shoulders our burdens, but the Son himself steps in from his position of absolute authority as our go-between to ensure that those very Holy Spirit-crafted groanings, they strike home heart to heart with the Father hand-delivered. As Christians, we rest in the very midst of the Godhead. Even right now, even when you don't feel like it. This just blows my mind. And I need to be reminded of this repeatedly, don't we? 
And so it's in the light of that that Paul then says, this is how we can know we are conquerors in this life. Then he says in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm going to read that again in a minute. But we are more than conquerors. But just picture this. Big brother, Jesus, sitting beside the Father, Holy Spirit living and working in us, God's children. So for example, just when we pray, just think about prayer. When we pray, Holy Spirit helps us find our words or he fills in the gaps when we struggle to. And then Jesus ensures our requests and our cries and our thank yous are hand-delivered to the Father. And we are swept up into the very midst of the Godhead with those, even those little arrow prayers. Even those shifty, avoiding eye contact moments when you try to pray for the first time in ages. Even those moments when you're repenting about something you are utterly, deeply ashamed of. Even those times when you rant at God, when you're confused or you're frustrated. Even those times when you've sat at the back of a prayer meeting and you've just, you're not feeling like it, but you've mumbled amen to someone else's prayer. You've joined in anyway. None of those moments are insignificant in the slightest. The power of prayer is not in the words you use. The power of prayer is not in how loud you shout them. The power of prayer is not how long you pray for. The power of prayer is found in the one who resides in you, Holy Spirit. The power of prayer is found in the one who personally hand-delivers those prayers to Dad. And the power of prayer is found in that one who sits on the throne, Father. And that's just prayer. So here's the even more astounding result. Let's read that verse 37 again. So Paul says, Nah, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We are loved conquerors. In fact, we are more than conquerors. If you think your prayers are feeble, know that Holy Spirit empowers them for you. Holy Spirit empowers them for you. If you think you are not worthy to stand before God or to ask him for anything because of what you, you know you've done or what you feel like who you are, know that Jesus has made it possible to stand in his worthiness. He goes, I've got this. You're ours now. That's what he says. If you lack securities, we were hearing earlier about where we find our confidence. If you lack security for this life and beyond, the things you face, the trials and the upsets and the challenges of life, just know that you can find utter security in Father's unstoppable love for you. He's made it possible to be swept into the very family dynamic that never began and will never end. That is where, if you were his, that is where you now sit. That is where you can now rest. There's a a lovely little story. We were just hearing about C.S. Lewis earlier, weren't we? There's, um, I don't know if anyone has read the, uh, the Narnia books, the, the Magician's Nephew. 
It's the prequel to The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And there's just a lovely little moment in there that just kind of helps exemplify this family dynamic. That uh, The great lion Aslan, he represents Jesus in these stories. And Aslan, the great lion, he sends a couple of children, Polly and Diggory, and their flying horse, as you do. He sends them on a quest across the land of Narnia. They've got a job to do, an important quest. But when night falls and they still haven't reached their destination, they realise they're getting pretty hungry. And they realise they've got nothing to eat. So um, they stare at each other in dismay. And Diggory says, well, I do think someone would have arranged for our meals to be available. So the horse says, because obviously flying horses talk. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? So the horse says, well, I'm sure Aslan would have arranged your meals for you if you'd asked him. So then Polly says, well, yeah, but this is Aslan we're talking about. Wouldn't he have known to do it without being asked? But the horse says, I've no doubt he would. But I've sort of an idea he likes to be asked. This is our God we're talking about. He's not a great dictator. He's our father. And fathers love to give their kids good things. But more than anything, they like to do it out of relationship. They like to be asked. This is his heart. His heart for us is not great leader, commander-in-chief. He's father. And he wants to converse with us. He wants dialogue. He wants to relate to us. And he likes to be asked. And that's, again, this is just prayer, but it's an example of what this family dynamic is all about. It's about intimacy and togetherness through relationship. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 tells us that God knows what we need before we ask. But he likes to be asked. Why? Because he, being family, has caught us up into that very family. And we get to actively participate in that family dynamic. This is what we get to walk in as Christians. Not as spectators, not as consumers, but as children. As Holy Spirit empowering our weaknesses, shouldering our burdens with us. And Jesus, the Son, our big brother, he's enabling that very relationship for us. He has done and he will continue to do so. And so our Father becomes exactly that. He becomes Father. And in that, we are more than conquerors in this life. You can almost, not being flippant about the things you face, there are real difficulties in this life. But it doesn't mean you can almost have a spring in your step. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be dismissive of difficult things. And many of us in this room are going through them right now. But there's a, there's a difference to our gait, to our walk, when we recognise who we are in God. Does that make sense? We need to recognise this more and more because we are caught up into this eternal family forever. Amen? Shall we pray? Let's just, let's, you know, I don't know, let's just, we're finishing early, let's make the most of it. But let's, from where you are, let's just sit in silence just for a minute or so. But another thing, let's just take it in terms, just shout, shout out from where you are. We're family together with him. Let's just, if you feel led to pray out, do so. Let's just spend time with our amazing father and amazing big brother and amazing helper. Let's just enjoy this just for a moment. Let's just make the most of this. Just go for it. Sit in, sit in silence for a moment. And as, if and as you feel led, if no one does, it's fine. But if you do, let's just enjoy it for a few moments. Let's go for it.